So this morning is the Good Friday service, as mentioned, and you know you're here on Friday, so you've figured out that this is not your regular Sunday morning. If you thought today was Sunday, I'm sorry. There is another service in two days, uh, and we're really excited about our Easter service. I hope that if you're here, you'll join us again on Sunday. Um, but the reality is, as we get to Good Friday, there is a different feeling about the Good Friday service. And so this morning is not your typical one church service. We won't be asking questions. We won't be pausing. And I hope that as we go through and we look at the story and we reflect on the details that you'll be asking questions of yourself. Where am I in this story? We've been doing a, a reading plan with some people in the church and one of the really cool things about the plan is every, every story, there's a moment when we pause and we place ourselves in the story. And so when Jesus washes the feet, we, we put ourselves in that moment and we, this, and we ask questions like, what do you see in Jesus' face? What do you, what do you feel when you look in Jesus' eyes in this moment? And and it's a cool, it's an interesting, it's an awesome practice to put ourselves in the story, but to remember we're not always the hero in the story. Sometimes we're not always like, we don't always like where we are if we were part of that crowd and we're part of the story. But So this morning we're going to go through, and I'm not going to read the whole story because I want to honor your guys' time, we're, but I don't want you not tell the story. So we're going to go through and I'm going to hit the major points as we go, but there's a point in the story I want us to get to and I want us to pause and glean from this moment in Jesus' darkest day and again ask the question, where do we fit in the story? And what can we learn from our Savior? What can we learn from the people that are there? What can we take and apply to our own lives throughout the day? and throughout the week, and throughout the rest of our life. And the hope is that, yes, there might be some solemnness, yes, there's some reflectiveness, but that we would come out of this morning excited for everything that Sunday represents. And so here's the story. Most of you know the Good Friday story. Um, for those of you that don't, this is all new stuff. It's all... All four gospel accounts tell this story, and they tell it from different perspectives, and each perspective adds different details, and it's not that they disagree, it's not that they're arguing, but it's actually the fact that there's different details that each one felt was necessary to include, and it actually just gives us a better picture of what happened and everything that Jesus went through. And before Good Friday even hits... On Sunday, we talked about Palm Sunday, and Jesus is worshipped and heralded as the King, the coming Messiah. I almost said Messiah and Savior together. That's not a word. Savior is not a word. Um, and he's worshipped. This is a high, right? This is a victory moment for Jesus where there's disciples and there's people in the crowd who recognize who he is and what he has come to accomplish. Jesus understands what it means to come off of a high, and all of a sudden, by Good Friday, within a week, he is, goes from this great moment where everything is going his way and everything is going good to this moment where it's dark and it's hard and Jesus is in a garden praying to his Father and he's so stressed out, he's so anxious in this moment, it says he's actually sweating drops of blood. 
Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the new great high priest, and we don't serve a God, we don't serve a priest who doesn't understand. Jesus understands every single struggle, every single hardship that we could ever face. Jesus understands what it's like to have a victory, to have a highlight moment in your life, and to have everything turn around so quickly, and all of a sudden you find yourself rock bottom in a dark and scary chapter. Jesus understands. In fact, Jesus went through it probably more extreme than any of us have ever experienced. But if you've ever gone through that and felt like you're going through it alone, you're not. Jesus is right there because he, he gets it. And so Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. And it is so refreshing in this moment to see Jesus, the God-man, this only begotten son who seemed like he was invincible. All of a sudden he's scared. And we forget that. We forget that Jesus was scared. And that actually for us, it's okay when we feel scared. It's okay when we feel like it's too much because Jesus understands and he's going to walk through it and he's going to be our strength. It is not, it's not okay to bury those feelings. It's not okay to deny those feelings. If you're scared, you're scared. And we serve a God who understands fear. We understand a high priest who understands what it's like in those moments of extreme anxiety. And he does not push us off and like, oh, you're on your own. No, actually, Jesus is right there. And he's coaching you through it because he got through it himself. But this is only going to get darker for Jesus. Because not only is he there and he's worried and he's praying, God, not my will, but yours be done. At this moment, one of his good, close, personal buddies shows up. He's not there to support. He's not there to pray with Jesus. He's there with an army of soldiers, an army of temple guards, and they're going to take Jesus into custody. He's betrayed by one of his close friends. First, it's First he's worried. First he's anxious. Now he's been betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. If you don't, 30 pieces of silver was the price for a slave in those days. That's how much you sold a slave for, 30 pieces of silver. And slaves had no rights. They had no freedoms. They had, they had nothing. They were just a piece of property. Jesus was sold for the price of a piece of property. He's hauled off and he's mocked and he's ridiculed by the guards. Prophesy who hit you. Prophesy who... He's brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, and he is made to stand this mock trial as they bring in false witnesses. And the witnesses can't tell the same story. They keep contradicting each other. And finally the high priest gets to the point, he's like, we don't need these witnesses. They're not helping our case. And Jesus could have just stayed silent. He could have just sat there and said nothing the whole time and, well, they would have still found a way. But Jesus declares the most true statement he's ever said, I am. I am the Son of God. I am the chosen Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for. And the high priest rips his robes and his followers and the other priests rip their robes and declare him to be blasphemous because if it's true it means that everything in their life everything in their world has to change it means that they who were supposed to have all the answers missed it and so instead of acknowledging that they were wrong they get mad they rip their clothes they declare jesus a liar and they haul him off to pilate 
And Pilate, he stands before Pilate with the crowds and the priests declaring and saying, crucify him. He's an enemy of Rome. He is, an, he is stirring up the crowds. He is, he is bad. He needs to die. And Pilate's asking him all these questions. He's looking for Jesus, looking for a reaction, looking for him to defend himself, looking for anything. And Jesus just stands there and takes it. Remember, this isn't Jesus as he was in the garden. He's, been, he's a little beat up. He's looking a little rough right now. And Pilate has this idea, well, maybe it's not my place. Maybe, maybe I can't, but he's actually from Herod's area. Herod's in town. Take him to Herod. And Herod is looking for a magic show. He's heard the stories of Jesus. He's heard the miracles he's performed. And so all Herod wants is a miracle. You show me a miracle. Do something amazing and then I'll believe you and you're free to go. Do something for me. Act, monkey. Act is what he's really saying. And Jesus stands there and he's silent and he doesn't even acknowledge Herod's requests. And so Herod, frustrated because he didn't get what he wanted, as a king he was probably used to getting everything he ever wanted, sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate is starting to get desperate. The problem for Pilate was he was the Roman governor, and if there was going to be an uprising, because Israel was, good, was known for its uprisings, Israel hated the idea of being ruled by another country, and so often there would be radicals who would stir up the crowds and stir up the people, and there'd be, they would try to take over the Romans, and they'd try to kick the Romans out, and there'd be fighting, there'd be death, and it always looked bad on Caesar. And when Caesar looked bad, everyone underneath of him paid the penalty paid the price. And so Pilate does not want an uprising. Pilate does not want another problem. He doesn't want to give Caesar an opportunity to come down on him and punish him and send him off to some far reach place that... So Pilate's getting desperate. It's not actually about Jesus. Pilate's just looking out for himself. So Pilate says, here, I have an idea. I'm going I'm to have him flogged. And the Roman, Romans would take... There's so many names for the whip that they would use. The cat of nine tails. The... They took these leather straps lined with bone, lined with pieces of glass, lined with rocks. Everything needed to either soften him up or to cut him up. And the rule was 50 lashes minus one. The belief was if you hit him 50 times, he'd die. So we just take him close to death. And the Roman soldiers took great pleasure in this. And it wasn't just because it was Jesus. They did it to everybody. They just loved their job, which is just gross. And, and so they beat Jesus. The prophets say they actually took his beard and ripped it off his face. They beat him. They hurt him. They mocked him, called him the king of the worms, the king of the Jews. They put a robe on him and struck him and spit on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head that would have done way more damage. It wasn't like just neatly tucked on his head just in case it hurt him. No, this was crammed on. It would have taken pliers to peel off. And then they sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate's hoping that this is enough. That Jesus, now that they see him at his worst and they beaten beyond recognition that maybe this would be enough to let him go. 
it's not enough. The crowd wants him crucified. So Pilate has an idea. I'm going to bring out a rebel, a murderer. Surely the people will want Jesus released instead of Barabbas. Surely they have enough sense that no matter what the priest promised, no matter what the priest said, that they would rather have this good man, this teacher released instead of this rebel. And he's wrong. They present Barabbas and say, who do you want released? Do you want Barabbas or you want Jesus? And what do they say? They want Barabbas. And Pilate's, Pilate's at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. He has to do what he has promised. He has to keep his word. So he releases the rebel into the crowds. Pilate says, you do what you want to do. The crowd's still crying for Jesus to be crucified and they wash their, he washes his hands of the whole situation. And Jesus has marched through Jerusalem mocked by the crowds that once celebrated his arrival, mocked by the very people who once stood by him. And it wasn't like a nice short walk. He would have terrained the entire stretch of Jerusalem to get to the place where they put up his cross. It would have been brutal. And he's already been beaten beyond recognition. And the cross he was carrying was not light. When it says that Jesus fell three times, it's amazing that he got as far as he did. That cross would have been, it would have been just enough for him to try to carry the clothes on his back. He would have been so much in pain, so much hurting. But then to carry this cross. And he gets to the place of the skull. He gets to Golgotha, and that's where we pick up this story. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to, the, came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were crucified, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Take yourself off the cross, but don't forget about us because we're here with you. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus on cross, crucified between these two criminals who have deserved what they are going to deserve their punishment. And the leaders continue to mock, and the Romans continue to mock, and they continue to 
And yet, what does Jesus do in all of this? In the midst of the mocking, does he respond by laying out every sin that every single one of them ever lit? That would shut them up in a big hurry. Jesus in the garden told Peter that when Peter cut off the servant's ear, Jesus said, put your sword away. If I wanted to fight, I would call down legions of angels from heaven and they would fight for me. So does Jesus call down legions of angels in this moment to rescue him and to wipe out his enemies and to take them? Does Jesus get mad? Does he get frustrated? Does he vent? Does he... No, in the midst of all of it, as they mock and they criticize and they get on, even the criminal beside him mocks him. Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't criticize. He doesn't defend himself. He just takes it. And then when the one person in the whole crowd speaks up to him, the one criminal who acknowledges his sin, acknowledges what he has done, and acknowledges that he needs a Savior, does Jesus blow him off because his day is not going the way he wants it to go? No, even in his darkest moment, in pain that would be indescribable. The word excruciating comes from the same Latin word as crucifix. The Romans invented a word to describe how painful crucifixion was. In his pain, in his suffering, in his weakness, Jesus extends grace to this criminal. And as I was reading, I was so impressed and so moved by this because so often when we come, when God calls us to do something, what is one of the first things we say? Well, just wait, God, I got to get my life in order. I got to get everything in order. I got to stop struggling with what I'm struggling with. I just, I, I have to get things straightened out. Everything just needs to fall in alignment and then I will help you. And then I will serve. And then I will do the things that I, <laughs> I don't know about anybody else, but life doesn't tend to work that way. It never really goes according to plan on a regular basis. And if we allow the uncertainty of life to get in the way of us serving, we'll never serve. And Jesus, in the midst of everything not going his way, continues to stay on the mission that God sent him on. Continues to love on the people by not responding to their criticism and their mocking. He continues to love the criminal who even though he is in pain and probably just didn't even want to talk at this moment, every word would have been excruciatingly painful and yet Jesus looks at the criminal beside him and says, you will join me in paradise. He still extends the grace. He still extends the love. He still is the Savior even though he doesn't really feel like it at the moment. And it's a good reminder for us that we don't need to wait till life is all neat and tidy and lined up before we get involved. Because sometimes God can use us in our darkest moments to have the greatest impact on those around us. If Jesus could find the strength in this moment to continue to be who God called him to be, then maybe we need to do the same.
Maybe we need to just stop waiting for life to figure it out and just remember that God has called us and we just need to do what God has called us to do. But the other thing that I want, this is where we now come into the story. Because there's three groups of people at work here. Again, I know I just said this Sunday, but this is three different groups now. Well, actually, one's still the same. The Pharisees are still the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Romans and the leaders, they are still the ones who still think they're smarter than Jesus. They're still the ones who think that their way is the best way. They're still the ones who have the most to lose. They're still the ones who are the most ferociously objective to Jesus and in fact are mocking him. And there's always going to be those people. There's always going to be people in our life, there's always going to be people in our community who ridicule and criticize the message of the gospel because it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't work. It just asks too much and so people will reject it and they're just, no. In the same way they rejected Jesus and criticized him, they're going to reject and criticize the message that has saved you and transformed you. And by extension, because they, they reject the message, they may also reject you. Jesus said that if they mocked me, they mocked your teacher, how much more are they going to do it to you? The second group is a criminal who mocks Jesus. Because what does he say? He is willing, he's all in on Jesus as long as Jesus does what he wants him to do. Jesus, I'll follow you if you get me off the cross. I'll follow you if you get me out of this situation. And this, we, we know these people. We know that there are those around us who are like, I'm all in on Jesus as long as Jesus just says what I want to hear and gets me to do what I want to do and lets me live the life I want to live and just. That's not how it works. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There's some sacrifice. There's some element of taking up the cross. But the criminal, he's all in on Jesus. He's good with Jesus. As long as Jesus doesn't ask him to stay on the cross, as long as, he doesn't ask, as, long as Jesus doesn't ask him to stop stealing, he does, as long as Jesus doesn't... You say, uh, save yourself, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you be the Messiah. Get yourself off the cross. Oh, and remember, I stake us with you. And I'll, I'm all in. And then there's a the third group. And many of us fall in this group. We have a criminal who acknowledges the fact that he is a sinner. He acknowledges the fact that his actions have earned him his spot on the cross. And he acknowledges that the punishment that's come on his way, he has completely earned and in that brokenness, and in that moment of knowing that he is going to get what he deserves, he reaches out to the Savior and says, forgive me. Remember me. He doesn't ask to get off the cross. He, doesn't ask, he just asks, just forgive me. I, I'm going to get what I deserve, but just just forgive me, Jesus. And then in that moment, Jesus reaches out and he says, no, actually, not only am I going to forgive you, you're going to join me this day in paradise. 
If you are here and you are a believer, you were that criminal. You acknowledged the fact that you were broken, that you needed uh, a Savior, you needed God to do what only God could do, and He stepped in and He did something miraculous and life-changing. The problem is, is sometimes we change crosses. At one point, we were good well, at one point, we acknowledged that we were sinners in need of a Savior. And at some point, something happened. Maybe we just grew distant in God. Maybe we just kind of dropped our disciplines. Maybe we got busy and we missed a few Sundays, whatever it was. But at some point, we switched, cro- we sit- switched sides. And now we like Jesus as long as Jesus doesn't tell us something we don't want to hear. And this morning, God, God invites us to take up our cross, as Jesus said in Matthew and in Luke, and to follow him, to acknowledge the fact that even though we've been saved, and even though we've been forgiven, and even though God has done a miraculous thing, we are still sinners in need of a Savior. That no matter how good things get, we'll never stop needing Jesus will never stop needing his forgiveness, will never stop needing his grace, will never stop needing him to speak life and love and grace and lead and guide us into the good and glorious things that we are called to. You never stop needing a Savior. And maybe you're here this morning and this is all new to you. Maybe you've never made that commitment. Maybe you've never asked, maybe you've never realized how much you needed God until this very moment and God is speaking to you this morning. And I just want to invite you that this is the reason you're here. This is the reason you tuned in. This is the reason. And maybe you have made the decision, but you are here this morning and you recognize the fact that you switch crosses. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you recognize the fact that you are now on the wrong side. And we've now become the cultural Christian who likes Jesus as long as Jesus never says anything we don't like. Because this morning, I invite you to take a heart check and see where am I in the story. We're either the Pharisees and the leaders and the Romans who have completely rejected the message and there's still hope for you too because Jesus never gave up on the Pharisees. You're either criminal number one or you're criminal number two. My hope and my prayer this morning is that Jesus would speak to you and that you would have a moment with God and recognize the fact that no matter how long you've been at this, you're still criminal number two, a sinner in need of a Savior. I got the worship team come on up. I'm going to pray. And as the team plays and as I pray, I invite you to just pause. Invite everyone to close their eyes. Whether you need to hear hear my words or you need to hear the words of the song, just pray that you would open your ears and open your heart to whatever God has, has for you this morning. Jesus,
I thank you, God, that no matter what we're going through, you've gone through it, Jesus. That in the record of all that you accomplished and all that we know about you and everything that you said and everything that you taught, that we can come to you and you're not some disconnected God who doesn't understand pain and doesn't understand the highs and lows of life, who doesn't understand struggle, who doesn't understand anxiety, who doesn't understand... You understand, Jesus. You lived through it all. You were tempted the way we were tempted. You struggled in the ways that we struggled. You... You get it. And so we thank you, Jesus, that we can come to you and pour our heart out, no matter how hard, no matter how mad, no matter, wh- no matter what the emotion we may be feeling, we can come to you and just lay it all at your feet. Because at the end of the day, all of us, all of us are sinners. All of us have this rebellion in our heart that refuses to follow after you. And every day we have to make the decision to, we have to choose to follow you. It doesn't just come naturally. And so God, I pray for everyone this morning. God, I pray for those that maybe have rejected you and say that they can do it better. I pray, God, that you would find a way to speak to them, whether it's this morning, whether it's someone they talk to at church, or maybe it's just something that happens this weekend. Or, God, I just pray that you would find a way to speak to them and make yourself real to them. God, I pray for everyone who is, who is recognizing in this moment that they have resorted to following you only when you do what you want them, what they want you to do. And God, I ask for forgiveness for the times that I do that. Where I only follow you when you do what I want. Because you've asked so much more of us and you deserve so much better. God, forgive us for the times when we climb up on the wrong cross. God, I pray for everyone here who recognizes that, yes, I still need you. Yes, I still need your strength. I still need your grace. I still need your forgiveness. God, I just pray that they would experience it fresh and anew in abundance this morning. Because no matter how long we go at this, we still make mistakes. No matter how long we follow you, we still say the wrong thing on occasion. We still say, and we still come back saying, Jesus, I did it again. Forgive me, help me, strengthen me, give me the words that I need. And God, I pray for anyone here and anyone who's listening that maybe, maybe wants to make a new decision or wants to make a decision for the first time, God, I just pray that they are receptive to you, they're open to you, and that they would talk to somebody. They would find somebody who's been a follower of you and ask all the questions and make a commitment to follow after you. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you are such an amazing example to us and I pray that we would imitate you in all that we do no matter how good no matter how bad things are going I pray this in your mighty name Jesus
Amen.